וגם אני פתאום רואה את Welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolel. And it is a great honor and privilege to introduce to you Dr. David Lieberman, a premier mental health expert for this episode. We're going to cover some incredible, incredible, groundbreaking research as it pertains to mental health and really discuss how that could improve everyone's lives. It's something that's really important. Um, It's just something that we have to deal with as human beings. We are human. We have things that um, could get in the way of just living normal, mainstream, regular, healthy lives. And knowing the mechanics and the different uh, components uh, as it pertains to mental health is going to really go a very long ways. And you're going to hear all of that right here exclusively on Colote with the expert Dr. Lieberman. One disclaimer, there was a little bit of a technical glitch in the beginning. So the first couple minutes of the interview, the sound is not uh, not quite what we would like it, but you could still make out everything. And then a few minutes into it, uh, we change and it's going to be much better sound quality. So just bear with us for the beginning and then you'll hear it hopefully get much, much better pretty soon into it. But nevertheless, this is going to be an episode that I think could really improve everybody's lives. You're going to live calmer, uh, much more um, much more stable, and I think it's going to be something that you're going to be able to apply rather easily as well. So without further ado, let me tell you about our guest. David Lieberman is the legendary leader in the field of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. His groundbreaking research and writings have established him as a remarkable force of influence across a spectrum of fields and industries. His 11 published books, which include two New York Times bestsellers, have been translated into 27 languages, selling more than 3 million copies worldwide. Dr. Lieberman has appeared on more than 300 programs. He is a frequent guest expert on national television and radio shows, and he has been interviewed for and featured in leading newspapers and magazines around the globe. And I'm going to add that I had the privilege of getting to see a little of Dr. Lieberman, not a little, a lot of Dr. Lieberman in person, in real time, and in practice um, in my last years or so in Lakewood. And it's something uh, his teachings have really made a huge impact on me. And I'm, I couldn't be more thankful and more thrilled to have Dr. Lieberman on our show. So, Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for coming on Colote. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I want to ask you first, my, my, my first question, mental health. It's such a broad topic. It's such a, um, you know, it includes so many different things. I want to ask you for the definition of what does it mean to be mentally healthy? And I'm going to um, preface the question with the following. When it comes to physical health, for example, so if someone's, let's say, six feet tall, just easy six feet, he weighs 190 pounds or so, his blood pressure is this, his cholesterol is that, it's very easy to define with real science and with real um, you know, metrics and tests, et cetera. With mental health, I presume it's not as easy. So 
my question is, number one, what is the definition of being mentally healthy? And number two would be, how does one know for himself or herself if they are? Wow. What a very, very smart, interesting question. So first, you're right. Mental health or emotional health is a broad category. And generally refers to the degree to which a person is self-aware and able to navigate their emotions. So for example, you know, being emotionally healthy means that you're going to be happy, sometimes sad, angry, um, anxious, and so on. But an emotionally healthy person is able to be aware of those emotions more consciously than not and be able to navigate them in the healthiest way possible. So, you know, it's, it's too easy to suppress or to repress or to deny how we're feeling uh, and sort of, you know, marshal on. Rarely is that required for optimal mental health. Rather, it's a recognition, the acceptance of the emotion, and then dealing with it in a responsible way, whatever that would be. Okay. Is there like a, um, a question or a test that one could kind of apply to himself to know if they are in the positive or in the negative? And I'll give you an example so you understand a little bit better. Um, a couple uh, episodes ago, we had Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson on, and we were talking a little bit about diversity. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the conversation got into Shalom Bias. And I asked him, how does one know if they have good Shalom Bias, uh, good peace, and, and they have a good, healthy, and happy home? Um, and, and their marriage is, you know, not perfect, but good. So he said a very interesting, uh, thing that one should ask themselves is, uh, when they go home, are they excited to walk through the door or are they dreading the drive home? Um, are they excited to see their, um, their wife and kids, uh, his, you know, one's spouse and their family, or are they trying to push off, um, and stay at work or wherever as late as possible and think about how quickly they could get out of the house. Right? Sometimes people become so religious. I have to go to Mariv. I have to go to Dafyomi. I have to go to this class. I have to go to that class or whatever it is. Is a person, you know, excited about walking through the door? So that's a, that's an interesting question, an interesting way to put it, um, regarding Shalom Bias, regarding marriage, regarding my question is, is there something that someone could ask themselves about how they know their mental state is? Right. It's another good question. And, you know, Shalom Bias and being able to walk into the door of the Simcha rather than not, you know, being happy rather than not is certainly a sign or a symptom of emotional health. I'm not so sure, you know, it's a, it's a definition of it. Um, and certainly, by the way, the quality of our relationships and the quality of our emotional health are interwoven. So, you know, a, you know the, the question that we would ask ourselves might be is, um, is there a degree of what we call life satisfaction? In other words, am I happy to be alive? Doesn't mean that you wake out of every uh, out of bed every day in the morning and, and jump out when the alarm clock rings and and don't stop until you know midnight. What it does mean is that there's a degree of satisfaction, there's a degree of fulfillment. Ultimately, really, what we're seeking is pleasure. And it, it sounds counterintuitive because very much in the secular world, we presume that pleasure means something uh, that it's really not. We confuse pleasure and comfort. So real pleasure is attached to meaning. So if we're doing things that are meaningful, we're doing things that have value, doing things that are important, we're going to naturally extract a degree of pleasure. So we will have a degree of life satisfaction. If we're doing things that are meaningless or we're just escaping with excursions and entertainment and various ways to move away from reality, then de facto, we're not going to be experiencing real meaning, so no real pleasure, and we're going to be feeling less life satisfaction. 
So you mentioned two things, reality and entertainment. And I really want to actually focus and dissect each one respectively. So first with reality. So it's a funny word because it could go in circles. It's reality for me, but who said it's reality objectively? So how does one be, you know, be honest with themselves if it's their reality or it's uh, really reality? Good. Very good. So there's been a lot to unpack there. First off, mental health requires an allegiance to reality at all costs or consequences. What reality is, how we define that, we'll get to. But any time a person moves away from the swift current of life, moves away, you know, some of the most neurotic people are the ones who want nothing to do with stress, right? The ones who try to eliminate all stress in their lives are, 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 are the most, or can be the most emotionally uneven because only through connection to reality do we become more stable? And it's counterintuitive, but the horror, the ego, tricks us into believing that by eliminating things, um, by, by, by eliminating uh, living, that will end up somehow being emotionally healthier. Now, we're not talking about eliminating unnecessary stressors. A person shouldn't, you know, put themselves on the 405 in Los Angeles or the I-95 here in New York or New Jersey uh, just for an exercise in stress. What it does mean is that Anytime we move away from living our lives and facing the pain and the challenges of life, the legitimate pain and challenges of life, we end up causing ourselves more emotional distress. And that just happens time and time again. So where entertainment comes in is entertainment is, there's no word in Lush and for entertainment. There's a modern word, but there's no word because the idea that extracting something from nothing simply doesn't exist. Now, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, taking a vacation. We're not talking about taking a break. We're not talking about recharging the batteries. We're talking about a person who systematically, consistently moves away from what's real in order to escape, again, the legitimate challenges of life. As an example, sometimes you can have a real just challenging, you know, uh, uh, um, hard day where you're dealing with a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, you feel this somehow this deep sense of satisfaction. Other days, you can have something where absolutely positively nothing is going on. You may be bored out of your mind. You put your head on the pillow. You're thinking that was a lousy day. So it's not about the challenges. It's not about you know, the, the uh, stressors that we endure. It's how we deal with them that determines not just our emotional health, but the entirety of the quality of our lives and relationships. Okay. All right. Very good. So now I want to pick up on entertainment. Um, are there different types of entertainment and, and how they um, line up against reality? For example, if someone's reading or watching something that's like, you know, uh, fiction or it's, um, you know, it's Harry Potter, for example, it's, you know, no connection to our life literally in every sense versus someone having a good time listening or watching to a football game, which is actually happening. It's not consequential to their, uh, you know, to their family and to their job and their, you know, you know, real life. But is that type of entertainment different because it's actually somewhat reality because it's happening? Right. That's a very fine question. Um, and uh, at first blush, I think, I, I don't think so. In other words, the fact that a person's reading a book and using their imagination and engaging in some, you know, other world, um, I'm not so sure that that makes it more fictional than watching a football game. And again, I, it's not about whether it's a good idea, a bad idea, and so on. Everybody needs ways to recharge uh, in a responsible way. And let me just say parenthetically, in case I forget to say it, is that the way you know whether the recharging is 
positive is when you come back to your real world, to your real life, do you feel energized? Do you feel reinvigorated? Does your neshama, does your soul now have a, that sort of renewed passion? Or are you feeling a little bit guilty, a little bit ashamed, feeling a little bit listless, feeling like, you know what, I like, like it, 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 like you, it costs you something. So, you know, taking a break, the idea is to recharge the batteries and to come back to the real world um, in a optimally healthy way rather than to come back depleted. But if in terms of, yes, a football game is happening in real time, real life, but you know, it, you can make the claim saying, okay, fine, you can play a video game uh, with, with people shooting them out, or you can go down to a bad neighborhood with a gun and, you know, and, and shoot things out. You know what I'm saying? It's, if it's, if it's it, the, the, when we talk about reality, we're talking about something with meaning. And again, there, there is, there is value, by the way, in reading a book and watching uh, a football game. Again, it's, it's different conversation in terms of, you know, the value for whom and how much value. Um, but th- there is a value there. But in terms of meaning, in other words, how much meaning is there? Because ultimately, without meaning, we're not going to have pleasure. Rav Noach Weinberg, that's how I used to say, the opposite of pleasure is not pain, it's comfort. Because it takes pain and effort to get through to real pleasure. But pain, is, again, pain is necessary for pleasure. Comfort is an escape from real pleasure. So the two don't coexist. There's only so much you could sit in, on a couch and, and watch a football game before you go completely mad. Is because that it is comfortable, but because it has no meaning, it has no inherent pleasure. And you're not going to be able to feel any real sense of satisfaction for doing it for too long. We can move on from sports, although, Dr. Lieberman, I hear that you uh, share something in common with Tom Brady. Is that true? You know, you're going to have to tell me what that is. I know Tom Brady is a, is a quarterback, but after that, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I think you told me that you share the same uh, editor or something. Oh, right, you. right. That's the, no, right, 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 right. right. We, have, we have the same agent. That's right. Agent. And all right, obviously not sports agent. He also has a literary agent. So we have the same agent. That's right. <laughs> That's how much you follow sports. You forgot what you shared in common with uh, probably the best quarterback of all time, but it's all good. Okay, so let's move on. Um, or let's go back into general mental health. Um, why is there such an increase? I mean, I guess maybe I'm taking uh, the premise that there is an increase, not just more awareness, but I, I would venture to say, or it's, it's really based off a gut feeling that there is a huge increase of mental health um, issues, challenges, diagnosis, what have you. Um, wh- why are we seeing that? I mean, is this something that has happened before in history or is it unique to our generation, our time and place? Right. You'll always say, find people who say that there's better diagnostic skills and um, criteria. So, you know, it's not increasing, but I will tell you it's increasing. Uh, and in broad strokes, it's increasing because as the world becomes more chaotic, more unpredictable, more uncontrollable, uh, anxiety is creeping in and anxiety will exacerbate whatever emotional illness, disorder um, or dysfunction a person is suffering with. Um, and in and of itself, obviously, there's different types of anxiety, but anxiety is, it can be extremely, extremely destructive and disturbing to a person's uh, well-being. So, yes, we're definitely seeing a, a decline in the emotional health, the mental health, um, and, and it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a rapid one, I got to tell you. And COVID just certainly exacerbated everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- why so? Why did COVID impact mental health? It's- that's a good question. The answer is because, 
You know, the quickest way to make yourself neurotic is to focus on all the things in your life that you can't control. So when COVID hit, you've got this mysterious, fast-moving monster uh, that nobody understood, and we still understand very little. So you have this, this, uh, this pandemic, this plague that is striking people down seemingly at random, um, and everyone's locked into their homes stocked up on tuna fish and toilet paper, trapped in the house with these people who we may have had a marginal, decent relationship with before, but now 24-7 for month and month and month, you know, plus with, you know, worrying about, uh, part not worrying about money, worrying about health issues, worrying of the fears, you know, it compounds it. So our relationships with too many people become strained, which injures uh, whatever, uh, you know, which injures the emotional health, but the anxiety itself that it produced ended up exacerbating everything else. So again, it was this feeling that I am not in control of, you know, pretty much whatever happens. Now, the truth is a person who lives a uh, proper Torah observant lifestyle recognizes they're in control of nothing anyway. Right. Their the and their trust in Hashem on whatever level that we're on, right, allows them to accept that we don't run the world. So to that degree, I think that uh, we could be a little bit more insulated. but because we're, you know, we're not malachim, we're not angels, we're human beings, it's easy uh, to get sucked up into the craziness. And what happens is, is that, you know, th- you know, the media did no service, by the way, in pretty much just sort of screaming all of the deaths and destructions and all the warning signs and symptoms, which anyone can imagine themselves having. So that certainly, you know, increased the fear and fear itself can lead to a host of emotional and mental issues, which then become real physiological ones, which then feed on the emotional ones, and it creates this, this awful cascading effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the pandemic really did a number on a lot of people. I will tell you what's most fascinating is the people who fared the best were the ones who, again, paint through the broad brush here, generally the ones who fared the best were the ones who are already suffering with anxiety to some degree. And the reason is twofold. One is they have learned to some extent some coping skills and mechanisms to be able to deal with the anxiety so they were better equipped. And two is they didn't feel alone anymore. They realized that, you know what, it's not just me. Everyone else is, you know, losing their mind or going bananas or getting all uppity. So it helps them to feel a little bit more comfortable. So I will tell you that what's interesting is that, again, not for everyone, but I've seen those that pocket to be a little bit more insulated than everyone else. Interesting. No, that, that that is very interesting. So before we talk about how we could um, help our general mental health, um, it, you know, in in the broad sense, let's just w- one follow up about COVID uh, improvement. What can people do today to try to um, negate some of the mental health um, risks that um, COVID has uh, brought to us? Great. Stay away from the media. One, two. Stay away from the media, and number three, stay away from the media. What happens is, is that when a person becomes anxious about something, we go ahead and seek information, which is fine. It's good. But at some point, it tips over into being oversaturated and it creates a, um, it creates a, a, an effect where we now have too much to process and we can't deal and we literally shut down. So I would say is you have to do a establish, you have to do your effort, you have to be responsible, of course, to whatever degree the prevailing wisdom is, um, and then go about your day. 
I mean, there's, there's, we've, we've had the flu, which kills 65, 75,000 people a year. Um, you know, certainly you've got unfortunate, you know, automobile accidents, you have different diseases. You know, this is not new in terms of people dying. What is new is the fact that in every other instance and case, we felt this illusion of control. Like if I do this, then I'll be okay. If I do that, then I'll be okay. We hear about somebody dying. It's like, oh, he must have been drinking or he must not have a seatbelt or must have this. That, that ability to be able to put ourselves in a different category and say we're going to be safe has existed for a long time up until something like COVID. So you have to bring back into your life that same mentality is do your ashtalas, do whatever it is, is responsible. And I not anymore and certainly not any less. You know, we say, I'll share a, a, a Torah connection on that. We say in davening every single day, Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon hakol, where we uh, talk about our allegiance to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to Almighty. And after the prayer of Aleinu, uh, some have the custom to say a, a very short, mini three-sentence or so prayer that goes uh, as follows. Al-tira mipacha pisom umishas rusham kisava. Right? One should not uh, fear... Um, sudden one should not have sudden fear, and uh, it, it follows with ki imanokel because the Almighty is with us. So it seems like there's this connection between one having increased anxiety and um, and a perceived a perceived lack of control. But the one more one, the the more one realizes um, that they never were in control, and it's the Almighty who's controlling it. There's no um, like you know drop and uh, you know sudden hit of fear. That we allude to every single day in Davening. Very nice. That's beautiful. Very, um, very nice. The the question that I want to ask is also in regards to COVID um, protocols, because there's a tremendous amount of focus on public health and how to prevent the spread, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there are all these things that um, that are that are suggested to help do such. Do those things have the, the specific instructions? Now, that could be uh, social distancing. That could be masking. Um, that could be whatever they may be um, or virtual events instead of in-person events, whatever they may be. They may help. Uh, they, they may or they may not help um, depending on uh, a, a whole host of factors. But are there mental health consequences? Because then it's not a matter of just public health. It's a matter of weighing the two. So are there in general yeah. – um, mental health consequences, which then changes the entire question completely. As a, as a, such a, a, a smart, insightful question. So first, look, is you know, you talk about ashtadlish, talking about doing effort and betachen. You can't have betachen unless you do your ashtadlish because having betachen, trusting Hashem, means that you're going to do whatever is reasonable, whatever is responsible, and Hashem will, and, and things will work out the way they're supposed to work out for your good. So when a person is irresponsible, they're not able to, to really own that betachem. And yes, certainly there's, you know, it, it is very short-sighted simply to, you know, for example, like we, when there's a big um, shift to keep the kids home from school. And again, I'm not talking about policy, whether it's right idea, wrong idea, and so on, but it didn't incorporate the larger picture. Forget about the fact that, you know, kids weren't a huge uh, you know, they're not, they weren't at, at a huge risk to begin with, but so they're not in school and now, so what are they doing? The parents, you know, still have to do what they have to do. So the kids go out, maybe they go to Bubby's 80s and infect them and so on. So I don't think it was thought through so well, but be that as it may, um, yeah, it's short-sighted because, you know, you try to protect the physical, but it can't be at all costs. 
And it's not just about having an economy that's going. It's not just about, you know, um, being out, being able to socialize. But the, the increase, I got to tell you, in alcoholism, in addiction, in divorce, uh, in abuse, in every community, every community, right, has gone up as a result of COVID. So you have to weigh out the risks of, you know, being in the real world with a deadly disease and, you know, shutting everything down and uh, forcing people into a place where their emotional health may very well become in jeopardy. Yeah, no, that that is so well said. I, I try to remind people, of course, on colos, we don't necessarily take any specific positions. We just try to bring awareness to the issue and parts that may not be focused on. But I do try to remind people that if one is saying that um, we shouldn't be taking such protocols, it's not because they don't care about public health. It's because they specifically do care about health and they are defining health as more than just one's uh, physical contraction of a virus. There are other things that go into the uh, go into the picture. So now we could move on. Um, or I should say, go back to general. How does one improve their own personal mental health in general? No, nothing to do with COVID. right. So, right, right, right. Okay. So the, the, there's a couple of pillars that mental health stands on. First is our relationships. You know, and this is something that you know, in Tarani time, I, I speak about. You know, ad nauseum. Hopefully not ad nauseum, but a lot. And that the quality of our emotional health and the quality of relationships are interwoven. So. You know, certainly it would benefit us to be able to optimize our relationships. Now, that doesn't mean you got to get along with everybody because there are some difficult folks who make it nearly impossible or impossible to be able to get along with. What it does mean is that we engage in with them in the optimum way. In order to do that, we need what we call self-esteem. Now, self-esteem is spoken about a lot. You can't open a book or, you know, on, on any subject in mental health without learning and understanding self-esteem. It's often misunderstood, misconstrued what it is and how we achieve it. So just to lay out sort of the broad strokes of it, self-esteem refers to the degree to which a person loves themselves and feels worthy of good things in life. That's it. I'm a good person and I deserve, um, I, I deserve good things to happen to me. Now, we know people with low self-esteem that may very well hold that same opinion of themselves, which is where now you get into, as you probably know, the distinction between the ego and the self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Ego is a false self, and it exists to compensate for our feelings of guilt, inferiority, shame, and so on. It's the ego that not only blocks the ability to be able to become self-aware of ourselves, of our, uh, become self-aware, um, but to engage in a healthy way with other people. So to come full circle, we need a dot of self-love. We need to be able to infuse ourselves with greater self-esteem. And that really comes from being responsible, doing what we know to be right, and being effective at it, having what's called agency. In other words, a person can know what they need to do, but if they don't have agency, if they're not effective in it, they're going to feel you know, sort of down um, at the same time. A person can feel effective in their lives, but if they're not doing something that's meaningful, right, then they're going to have a hard time feeling good about themselves as well. So those two pillars, again, there's a lot that goes into that, into it, but those two pillars are going to be the foundation of building self-esteem. And that is moving our lives in a purposeful, meaningful direction and being effective in that process. Okay. Wow. I, I, I really feel that we could go on forever and I hope that we'll, we'll be able to have a take too. Um, but 
I want to ask you lastly about parents. What can parents do, or I should say, is there anything that parents could do to help their children's mental health? And if so, what would that specifically be? Wow. Yeah, there, 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 there's, a, there's a lot they can do. There, there's a lot they can do, a lot they can do. First off is whatever the child is feeling, whatever they're expressing, whatever is on their mind, you've got to let them express themselves. Parents, it's so quick to jump in. <clears throat> and in trying to uh, make the child feel better, they minimize how the child is feeling. So a child would say, Mommy, um, you know, I'm, I'm anxious about this. I just heard in the news. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. All you're doing is shutting down that child and not allowing them to connect with you, which will help to ease their anxiety, as well as be able to express themselves. You know, it's like the kind of thing, you know, I don't know about you, but a lot of people growing up, you know, tell your mother you're hungry. And it's like, you can't be hungry. You just ate. Really? You know, I mean, but, you know, it's, that's one thing. And maybe it's the ruse to stay up later. But when a child is expressing how they feel, what they're thinking, and the parent, again, with good intentions, too quickly shuts them down and minimizes it, or worse, blames them. You know what? If you only would have listened to me, you wouldn't be feeling blah, blah, blah. It forces disconnection, forces a child to retreat to themselves, move away from the world, right? Move away from connection, and that exacerbates emotional instability. Because we said at the beginning that uh, mental health requires an allegiance to reality, a commitment to reality, regardless of the cost or consequences. So when a child is expressing how they feel, you have to be able to allow for them to express themselves to empathize, to validate, and that's number one. And number two is it's modeling. You know, you're going to have a hard time explaining to your child that things are going to be okay. There's no reason to worry. Hashem runs the world. Everything's good while they're tripping over, you know, boxes of toilet paper and tuna fish in the living room. So to every degree, you can, you know, live and model for them what betachen means, what trust means, that simcha which is very important. We didn't get into that, but there's a lot that goes into simcha and a child feeling more at ease. Um, those things are just fundamentally very, very important. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I definitely want to um, maybe at a later time uh, down the road, talk about more that parents could do for their children's um, health and, and, and building resilience, uh, which I know that you've done a lot on my, my question. Um, my, my, uh, my question about parents listening to their children um, so do we see when, when a child comes up and says, I'm hungry, is that kind of like, well, don't see them so much talking about their being hungry, see it more of like they ha- they're, they're attempting for a bit of connection, kind of like spouses to each other. Like, you know, what's the weather out like outside? Yeah, they care about the weather, but it's more about they want to engage in a conversation. Is that what's happening with children as well? Right. Very good. It could be. Look, you know, most times the child says that they're hungry um, when they're not. It's, you know, they want to stay up later. Or they want, you know, they want to treat or something like that. Um, and, and it could be, right, just an attempt to be able to have a conversation and to connect, uh, which is why even regardless of whether or not you feel the child is being honest or not, to invalidate how they feel and to tell them, no, you're not, um, is a mistake. Um, because those times that they do feel hungry, and we know adults like this, they don't trust themselves, they don't trust their thoughts, they don't even trust their feelings. And they become, unfortunately, very anxious is because their entire inner world um, is in flux. They are they're, they're very not grounded because they don't have a real sense of self because growing up that I that I, ability to be able to trust myself was eroded again, not through intention, not willfully. But as parents, you know, you do the best you can. 
And, you know, this was their experience. And you may have children, by the way, just out of the gate, they're more, uh, they're a little bit more anxious, they're a little bit more uh, sensitive. And, you know, those handle with care children, you know, need to be dealt with in an entirely different way. That's it's not, it's far from a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very good. So is it a problem here? Here's a yes or no, or depends type of question. Um, I get this all the time where, um, one of my kids wants to, um, have something is hung- like you say, I'm hungry, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I say back, uh, nice try. I know your tricks. Is that like not validating? Then he smiles and he goes, yeah, okay, fine. goes back to bed, whatever. Is that not validating? Or that's kind of like, you know, is that, is that still considered like shutting them down or no, they get it that I get it and they get it all. And it, 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 that's not harmful. Right. Yeah. No, look, look, if it's a game, then they're not really expressing how they're feeling. You know, they're pushing your button, you're pushing it back. You know, this is, you know, sort of a volley back and forth. That's right. okay. We're talking about, you know, when, when a child, and we're not just about being hungry. You know, the far, that's far from the end of the world, by the way. Um, you know, we, we, our generation, everyone grows up pretty much the same way. If kitchen's closed, that's it. No, no problem. We're talking about, you know, when a child is expressing really their feelings about something, they're anxious about something, um, they're worried about something, um, they are apprehensive about something, they're angry with something, and the parent will too easily uh, shut down the child's ability to express themselves by even questioning how they're feeling. You know, it's like, uh, you know, the person, don't be sad. You don't, you don't need to be sad. Oh, why not? He just took my toy. Well, why can't I be sad? Right. In other words, now there's a time, by the way, with kids is certainly introducing a other perspective and to ask himself on balance, you know, maybe he contributed to and so on, or maybe it's not one-sided, you know, let's look at the other person's perspective, all things to do. But the old saying, people don't care what you know, so they know that you care applies doubly here. And that is that up until the point you establish connection with your child, you empathize with their position, with their pain, you validate it, you let them know that their experience is real for them, then you can't shift them out of it. You just, you can't uh, help a child to see more clearly unless you have that connection. So when they're expressing themselves, when they're talking about how they feel, you got to be able to let them do it. Shlomo HaMelech says a problem shares, a problem has. So even just the, the cathartic uh, experience of talking about how they feel in and of itself is effective, add empathy and validation, you've got that connection, and then you can help your child with a solution. But you jump in too quick with a solution or you, you know, disconnect from the child by minimizing their experience or even worse, blaming them then, you know, you, you're going to have a child who is unable to really fully not just express themselves, but trust themselves. Wow. Very good. Dr. Lieberman, do we have time for one last question? Sure. Sure. Of course. Okay. So it's a little bit of a hard question for me to ask, and I'm kind of even like second guessing, you know, questioning myself if I should even ask you, but it's so relevant and so contemporary. Um, I feel that we can't not discuss it. And that's, uh, re- and I'm referring to the recent unfolding tragedy and real Chil Hashem that took place in um, overseas in Eretz Yisrael and Israel um, amongst an author that many people um, adored, uh, myself including as a child. Um, and we found out what a terrible person he was before he took his own life. My question to you is not about uh, safety and institutional um you know, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again, et cetera. We are actually going to have Tzvi Gluck from Amudim come on and talk about that, and that will be that episode. My question to you is how do we deal with shocking news on an emotional level when we thought someone was one person and then we find out 
who you know what they really are. And this person in my life was such a hero. He was such a source of comfort. He provided such great material. And you know, unfortunately, to some of the victims, he was you know their therapist and not licensed, of course, which kind of was a red flag from the get go. But how does one deal with the news when something is shocking and it's like it it, it shakes them up? And I think there are a lot of people who are in a state of confusion and they just don't know how to process it all. So on an emotional level, what would your advice be? Wow, it's a very, very, very uh, interesting question. So first, it's like this. You know, uh, as you know, I do a lot of different work in a lot of different areas. And when it comes to, and I know we're not speaking about this specifically, but it's strongly related to sociopathy of sociopaths or psychopaths and psycho, uh, psychopathy. You know, people who are sociopaths, um, they have no conscience. And one of the most difficult things and I'm, again, I'm, I'm not diagnosing him for a second, but one of the most difficult things for people to understand is that a person without a conscience, conscience exists because it is very unsettling. And the reason why, you know, in, in, um, across the board, human nature is quick to uh, sweep things away um, is because it is unconscionable, it's unfathomable to be able to accept that this type of evil um, can exist and it's very unsettling. So we'd rather simply just say, you know, come up with some sort of ruse, some sort of excuse to sort of bridge the gap of that cognitive dissonance is how can I live in a world where, you know, these types of, of, of monsters live. Um, that's, that's, that's the thing simply to accept first off is that, you know, that, that these types of people do exist. Um, and, you know, I, I would put this in a category of, you know, any other sort of trauma, any other tragedy, any other event that happens, um, that it is, we, we don't have the ability to be able to gauge it from our perspective. All we could do is our own established. So something like this, then, you know, in, in terms of navigating the trauma is to use it as a catalyst and to take action in a responsible way. And, you know, something we've said a couple of times here is that the more responsible we are, the more emotionally healthy we're going to be and the greater our self-esteem. So to simply, you know, bury ourselves in a hole and, and, and say, pretend it doesn't exist, unproductive. To go ahead, you know, with um, baseball bats, metaphorically, of course, and take charge and, you know, and, and insist that, you know, that uh, everything be changed, also not productive. But be able to take responsible change about putting mechanisms into place to uh, to ensure the safety, well-being, and welfare of children and, and everybody moving forward. And that action in and of itself allows for that healing. But look, at the end of the day, there's only victims here. I mean, everyone's heart has to go out to you know this person's family and to their victims um, because the entire thing is nothing short of a tragedy. And the, the best thing we can do is to learn from it um, and do everything within our power to make sure that we prevent any other instance of this happening, uh, certainly at, on, on this scale. Yeah, no, that's definitely right. Let's, let's um, channel all of this energy and focus and a whole host of other things that are going in into real uh, you know, steps and measures that we could take as a community that, you know, I feel this is appropriate where we could say the words never again. It's usually used for uh, the Holocaust, but something like this. Um, yes, it wasn't millions of people, but it was just such such, such um, egregious, 
behavior and such devastating um, consequences. I hope that we'll we'll actually put this to uh, to something that will improve our lives and prevent anyone from such dangers. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, you were so generous with your time, and this was a real honor that we got to have one of the uh, premier mental health experts in the world today, um, and we're, we're very appreciated for all the things that you discussed. I hope we'll be able to, at the right time down the road, have you again and maybe you know, dive into uh, resi- resiliency with children. We didn't even talk about uh, um, shalom bias and the things that parents you know, could uh, do, to, couples could do to improve their uh, specific um, households, et cetera. But uh, maybe at another time, we, we hope we will be able to have you back. But thank you for coming sure. on. And uh, may Hashem bless you with much continued success uh, with your work, for, uh, for everything that you're involved with. You're, you're involved with so many different um, organizations and uh, uh, agencies. And uh, may Hashem pay, uh, repay you many times over and uh, only have bracha, blessing, and good mazel. Great. You're so good. You ask good questions. You're a great uh, host. And Mitzvah uh, Shem, lots of people will get a lot of benefit from all your podcasts. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolo. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolo is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolo, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.